welcome back to the byproduct the science podcast two nerds talking about science i'm basha and here with my co-host nolan and today we're going to be talking about the bad bitches of science some of our favorite scientists i feel like this is definitely not an exhaustive list in no specific order we will definitely add on to this in the future but yeah we're just gonna you know a candid little chat about you know some people yeah uh i guess i'll go ahead and start and like Paja said this is an exhaustive list because i'm not going to talk about my employer uh dr (laughs) johnson but he's definitely one of my favorite scientists for sure uh but i'll start with alexander fleming uh, you may recognize him as the person who invented penicillin. Um, what? I'm just commentating. Um, <laughs> he invented penicillin. He also discovered before that uh, lysozyme, which is like a an enzyme that cells use to break things down. You may like recognize the sound of it from the word lysosome. Right. Uh, and what is what is lysosome? What's that organelle? It's a it's a vacuole full of digestive juices like lysozyme right. used to break down proteins. Uh, I didn't know I was being quizzed today. I was just, you know, for clarification's yeah, yeah, yeah. sake, the viewers, they're supposed to learn. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so let's get back to it then. Uh, <laughs> uh, apparently he actually discovered them both the same way. You, uh, famously, he discovered penicillin when, uh, one of his petri dishes, he, like, left it out over, a, like, a long break or something. And, uh, he came back and he noticed the mold didn't have, uh, bacteria growing around it. And he was like, oh, that's neat, like... Neat. I should I should figure That's that weird. out. That's suspicious. Yeah, and then his uh, his assistant uh, looked at him and was like, "Hey, isn't that uh, isn't that how you discovered lysozyme?" And he was like, "Hey, yeah, that is how I discovered lysozyme," uh, because in both cases it was just his poor uh, his poor hygienic practices, which is why Baja still doesn't wash her hands. What? Um, what are you talking about? <laughs> anyway, I'm about to beat this bitch up. <laughs> um. But yeah, so he discovered it, and then he, uh, he realized, like, this is a big deal, like, penicillin, which is what he named the compound, uh, can, like, kill, uh, can kill bacteria, uh, and it does it by, like, inhibiting cell wall production, uh, and so he, he went, and he, like, did a few talks on it, and, uh, most people in the scientific community were, like, really unimpressed, they are like, yeah, that's cool, but, like, let us know when you can make it, and, like, let us know if it actually works in people. And he sort of did a very bad job, uh, at least according to one source, of like communicating just how big of a deal it was. So it took a, quite a few, like 10 years, uh, between like 1930 and 1940-ish, to actually get it up and running. And the way they finally figured it out is uh, Fleming had no, look in, no luck in the UK, like getting anyone to make it. So he went to a manufacturing like plant, chemical plant in uh, Illinois, and they set up like deep fermentation uh, units to like get mold making penicillin, and the person who came up with it, uh, Margaret Hutchinson Rousseau, uh, is notable because like she invented the way to like isolate penicillin, which like Fleming discovered it, but Rousseau is the one who like uh, you know is the one who made it so that we could actually use it, uh, and it was really useful at the time because as as you all know, World War Two was going on, uh, and there's a lot of like bullet wounds and stuff during wars. Uh, and they need to be treated with antibiotics so they don't get infected. Uh, so they started using it, and they still weren't that good at making it, and penicillin does this thing where it, like, people metabolize it really quick and it goes into their urine. So for a while they were, like, harvesting urine to, 
Oh wow. To get the penicillin back out. Oh wow. Yeah. Uh, so that's nasty. Luckily they don't do that anymore. They found a thing <laughs> that like inhibits uh, penicillin urination. But yeah. Penicillin urination. No, like that's the, you know, <laughs> it's the textbook word for it. Be mature, come on. Is it like, is the urination like unpleasant or just there's penicillin? There's just penicillin in it. Um, yeah. So that's Alexander Fleming. Interesting guy. Uh, just like big discoveries, bad communicator. There's something to learn there. Me too. Me too. I get it. Okay. I'm gonna throw it back. We're talking about one of the classics. Everybody knows her. Or you should. If you've stepped into any STEM classroom. Her name, Marie Curie. So, she's from Poland. Um, she and her family lived there during the Russian, you know, was in control. Um, both her parents were professors, so her and her siblings were just super smart, into school, whatever, whatever. So, they were in the Russian occupation. It was bad, hard times. Um, yeah, so they had to flee. So, I don't know. I don't, I actually don't know, but it was bad. And they couldn't afford to send her to college, so she worked super hard, um, until she finally went to university at 24. Um, she wanted to go to university in Warsaw, but they didn't accept women. So she went with her sister in Paris, and then she basically got her master's in physics and her master's in chemistry. Um, yeah, so after that, she tried to get a professorship somewhere in Poland because she wanted to go back to the motherland. Um, no universities in Poland were giving professorships to women. What the hell? So, she stays in Paris, I'm sure, with her husband, Pierre Curie, who was also a professor. Like, they met in academia. It was very cute. Um, and during her time, x-rays were just founded, like, that that whole era by Rogan, Roganton, whatever. So... Everybody was studying that, and she was like, I want to do something that everybody isn't doing, so, you know, I can stay low-key, I can hustle and grind on my own, right? Um, so, (laughs) she got uranium, and she used this electrometer that her husband, Pierre, actually invented, and it measured electric charge with, like, this crystal, it's like a thin sheet of crystal, and it's like... A metal sheet and it like expands and contracts and it like changes the shape to affect the sensitivity and yeah so you have a little uranium or your radioactive sample then they charge it up in the battery and then that crystal would move and then she would I don't know it was very intricate and she did all these measurements by hand you can see the picture here she would like lift up the weight to like see how far this like one beam of light would move on this little measuring tape and she did all by hand like one hand had the stopwatch and one hand was like the little weight that she'd move up and down and she sat there because science is very meticulous trials and trials and trials and yeah, she was the, actually the person that first split the atom, theoretically, right? So, she um, called this charge that was happening in the air of, like, around those radioactive molecules, radiation, right? So, radiation is energy that comes out of matter as it decays. So, at the atomic level, 
there was little particles, you know, popping off, decaying. Mm-hmm. So she was the first girly to conceptualize that that the atom is not the actual smallest piece of matter. So she's a revolutionary. She's an icon, a legend, the moment. Um, she went on to study in this shed. Her and her husband, they learned a bunch of methods, or developed a bunch of methods to isolate polonium and radium and a bunch of other isotopes. And yeah, she got the Nobel Prize in 1903 um, due to radioactivity, which she discovered. And then she died of cancer, probably from working with all of the radioactive materials over time in that dusty, dark shed. I, uh, I heard... I don't remember where, so, like, citation needed. But, uh, the... Apparently, like, Marie, Marie Curie would, like, take, like, the chunk of polonium or radium she was working with in the lab and, like, take it home and, like, leave it on her bedside so that, like, nobody could come up and take it. Because that back then, like, and we know it now, but, like, they didn't know radiation was bad for you. Right. So she would just, like, chill with it. And there were even, like... Apparently there used to be, like, sports drinks that had radium in them because they were, like, oh, yeah. like... Radium was in, like, everything. Like, that paint, like, the radium girls. Oh, the radium girls who would yeah. paint watches. Yeah. yeah so, so they had this radium paint, and it was glow-in-the-dark paint, and there were these factory girls, industrial revolution, child labor, whatever, whatever. And so they were told to, like, lick their paint brushes, like, to make the lines straight. And they were, like, licking it, all over time, like, using it as, like, nail polish and, like, on their teeth, like, for fun because it was going in the dark, but they, their jaws disintegrated, and, like, yeah, it was just super, super bad radiation poisoning, and, like, once you get to that level, it's, like, the radiation just destroys your DNA, so it's, like, your cells, like, they can't regenerate because they don't have any DNA to copy off of, so it's just, like, you're sitting there, and you just, you have what you have, and they were, um, in the trial, they were talking like the company versus like the girls, and one of the doctors was testifying, and it was back in the day where they, in medicine, they didn't tell patients if they were terminal because they thought it would just mess them up that if they knew they were gonna die, so they usually didn't tell them. But one of the girl, like the doctor was testifying, and was reading out this girl's chart, like she was gonna die, basically like it's terminal, and she was in the in the courtroom and she was freaking out because she didn't yeah, know but now we know that radiation is bad for you and we tell people when they're gonna die yeah great leap in science um speaking of great leaps in science our next scientist uh which baja and i both researched is gregor mendel uh you may all know mendel from uh ninth grade biology because of Punnett squares and whatnot. Uh, and he's the first person to come up with, like, the, like, genetic... He didn't come up with, like, uh, he didn't know about DNA or whatever. He just called them, like, genes and alleles. Uh, in any case, he's the first person to come up with the mechanism of inheritance that, like, we have today, that we, like, believe in. Um, and I think most people are familiar with it, and it's kind of hard to explain in words, like, the visuals of, like, dominant versus recessive alleles. Uh, so I'm not going to get into it. But before him, most, uh, like, the popular conception of genetics was that, like, uh, 
uh, if you had two parents, the offspring would like get an average of the two parents traits. Blended genetics. Blended genetics. Uh, whereas now we know from Mendel's experiments that at least in some cases, uh, there's actually like certain traits which are dominant over others and there are certain traits which are only recessive. Uh, and he studied pea plants and Baja, why did he study pea plants? Oh my gosh, so he was a friar like on this monastery. I don't know if that's the word, but um, the bishop or the priest in charge was, he was gonna study rats originally but the priest in charge did not like the idea that he was studying animals having sex. So he switched to peas instead. But he was, um, he grew up on a farm and he was a beekeeper. So he was familiar with plants and bees and stuff. The birds and the bees. <laughs> I was gonna say silver lining, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but anyway, so plant sex was cool. So they, uh, so he, he focused on like, six traits in plants and pea plants. I think it's like flower shape and then flower grouping and then height, pea pod color, like pea pod, like wrinkliness or smoothness. And then I don't know, something else, uh, doesn't matter. But he found that, uh, if you take a true breeding green pea plant and a true breeding yellow bre green pea plant, uh, and you cross them, you get all yellow pea plants for the second generation. But then if you cross all those plants, uh, your next generation will be three quarters yellow plants and one quarter uh, green plants, which meant that there was like somehow uh, basically like genetic memory in these plants that was telling them like, you know, how, how should I make my, what, what color should I make my peas? Uh, and so he did like a bunch of tests on a bunch of different plants and he kept getting these results and he communicated it to the scientific community at the time, but they didn't really listen to him, um, but famously he kept his head up and he once told a friend, uh, my day will come. Uh, and eventually it did. Uh, I think early in the 20th century, people started looking at Mendelian genetics and they're like, hey, this guy's onto something. Uh, but people started looking a little closer and there's a little bit of a, a scandal where uh, some stati statisticians in like the 50s uh, looked at his results and they found that he was getting like way too close to like the perfect three quarters every time uh so they because they did like a they found a good like his like p-value or something and they basically found out that he was hitting the lottery like over and over again getting like really really clean like three quarters results which conflicts with everything we know about like mendel because he was a monk like he wouldn't lie he was supposedly like mild mild-mannered uh like very like a good person um so there's a few theories on like Either he lied so that people would listen to him, or he just didn't lie and the people who did the statistics are wrong. Uh, but yeah, that's interesting. That's like his controversy. Um, that's all I know. Do you have anything else about it? Mm. No. But, you know what I do know? You know who was robbed? I know who was robbed. Right, who was told who, who was robbed here? Rosalind was Franklin robbed. was robbed. Yep, Rosalind Franklin was robbed. So, Rosalind studied X-ray chromatography of DNA. So, X-ray chromatography is basically a way of visualizing proteins. Proteins, super super small particles. Um, lots of different ways to visualize them. Back then. 
like making an x-ray crematography sample even today is hard you have to like get huge amounts of the protein you gotta like freeze it it has to freeze in this perfect crystalline structure and then you take an x-ray of the crystal structure and then you look at that so she was literally in the lab grinding for months for months grinding um and watson and crick they looked at her notebook they stole her work um but here's the catch here's the gag they waited until after she said that she was resigning from her position at cambridge did they um want to publish their findings and their model and start right and it was found out that watson and crick were both just misogynists and just bad people all around and they got the Nobel Prize for DNA structure, even though it was literally based off of Rosalind's work. And I'm still mad about it until this day. And I'll use any time to slander Watson and Crick. One of them might be still alive. If I see him on the street, is on site. I don't care if he's... Actually, matter of fact, send this to him. <laughs> like... <laughs> if anybody knows him, I don't know. Right. Alright, uh, I have another scientist. I don't know uh, that much about her. There's actually not that, like, not a ton about her on Wikipedia. Uh, but she is famous. If you know about thalidomide, uh, is a drug which was used to treat morning sickness. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it tra- like, it really worked. It did a great job of treating morning sickness. The problem is, like, as we all know, morning sickness, you know, it's a symptom of pregnancy. Uh, unfortunately, this drug also caused birth defects. Um, which is not good, obviously. Uh, huge birth defects. Huge birth, yeah, like bad ones. Missing limbs. Yeah. Messed up heads. Bad stuff. Um, and the reason it did that is because it uh, it tautomerizes in solution, which is where like, basically, uh, if you're familiar with like acids, they like give up a hydrogen, uh, and like most acids aren't like perfect acids. Like there will be some things in solution that have a hydrogen, some that don't. Well, tautomerization is when say a molecule like loses that hydrogen and then uh it like changes shape in some way that when the hydrogen comes back on the molecule is now like shaped differently uh so even though it has like all the same atoms in it it's a it's it's, different yes and it behaves differently shape equals function and if the shape is off function is off function is off um and so thalidomide uh that's what it was doing in like women's bodies and that's what was causing the birth defects because one isomer is really good at treating morning sickness and the other one causes birth defects uh and so it got approved for use in the uk and there were a lot of children born with like birth defects uh but it never got approved in the us because of the great francis oldham kelsey uh who uh famously just like stopped it from coming through i i don't think it was because she like knew about the tautomerization i think she was just like we can't because it was sort of being treated like a miracle drug. Like, oh, this is great. Like, let's right. just let people use it. They were using it for other things, too. Yeah. And it wasn't causing problems. Because they weren't pregnant. Because they weren't pregnant. Yeah. Um, so why was, she, why was she number one hater? Huh? Why was she the number one hater of that drug if it wasn't... She just... I think she just didn't want it to, like, get pushed through. Because uh, it was, like... It was just too... She didn't want to be hasty. To be true. Yeah. Let me, I can, I can look real quick. Uh, 
At least she found out that it could, uh, a lot of things could pass through the placental barrier, and she uh, wanted to make sure it, like, didn't have an effect there, and it, sure. it did. She was right. Yeah. Period. So, uh, kind of a hero, like, who knows, you know, like, whose parents wouldn't have been born if they're, or, like, wouldn't have been born, uh, could have been born with birth defects if they, like, then taken, you know, their par- if their parents take thalidomide. You never know. That was the least clear statement I've ever said in my life. <laughs> Those murky statements. Those murky statements. Anyway, your turn. Okay, so we're gonna reel it back into the present. We're gonna talk about John B. Fenn. He is the Nobel Prize winner in chemistry for 2002 for electron mass spectrometry. What's electron mass spectrometry? I was just wondering. Right, so basically, it's a way of like literally just spraying stuff through and measure and just like measuring the the electrons i can't explain it but i know how to it's you shoot electrons at a molecule yes and so that like that will like the electron will like get stuck on an atom and then because of the negative charge the like atom will like break uh and you get like fragments yeah and you just put the fragments together basically yeah to see what's inside whatever so, John B. Fenn, he... Okay. Where did he go to college? He went to college at Yale. Yeah, he went to college at Yale, and then he went on to work there and study there. Yada, yada, yada. Um, he worked at Monsanto, and he studied phosphoric acid in polychlorinated biphenyls. PCBs and Project Squid, which studied how squids use their propellant, like their, because they're super efficient and like super efficient. I don't know how else to say that. They can just go through the water super fast and like they were studying like its propeller system, like how it just shoots like the jets, like it shoots water through itself so it can move. So he was studying that. Um, Yeah, and then he went to Yale. And he, well, Yale had this policy where if you're past, like, 70 years old, you can't have, like, a full lab or whatever. And he was like, I'm actually still researching, guys, so I don't, what? And so he, (laughs) he had a dispute, and he was like, all right, well, I don't know what happened. But basically, he was there researching, and then... They had another dispute about the effects of mass spectrometry, like, for industrial use and research use. Like, he downplayed, like, its importance because he was like, I don't like how Yale's treating me right now. Like, Uh, you guys are screwing me over. I hate this. Drama between professors and university administration? Never. Right. So then, um... They were in a dispute. Yale sued him, and Yale actually won. But then he moved to Virginia Commonwealth University, VCU. <coughs> and anyway, anyways, VCU. And you know what VCU did? They made it real. So he was the head of the chemistry department. And in 2002, he won the Nobel Prize while he was working at Virginia Commonwealth University. So yeah, and he was also... I just found this piece of information funny. So, at my school, VCU, 
Um, every chemistry class at the end of the semester, you take the ACS exam, and you pass. Like you have to pass the exam, or you don't pass the class. It doesn't matter what grade you had. You just have to pass this exam, right? So ACS stands for American Chemical Society. And then when I was comparing notes with girlies from other schools, they had never taken the ACS. They've never heard of the. Have you taken the ACS? I've never heard of the ACS. Right. Exactly. Well, I've heard of the. American Chemical Society, not the exam. Right, so why are we taking standardized exams from these people? So, um, I think it's because John B. Fenn, he was one of the chair people of American Chemical Society, and he was head of chemistry department at VCU, and now I guess we still do it to this day. Every silver lining has a cloud. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, yeah. do you have anyone else? Uh, well, we have Freud on our little idea document. Um... But he's got nothing next to him. Uh, Just thoughts about Freud? Thoughts? I mean... I'm trying to be careful here, because, you know, Freud, I don't want to... I disassociate cocaine, him being crazy. Like, I just think, like, he was one of those people that he was never told to shut up. And he just kept going with, like, I don't know, like, he just kept going with it. And, like, he just had enough audacity and enough I mean, people believed him and he was like, okay, and now we still I guess look at him. He's kind of like Mendel. Because, like, Mendel, like, Mendel got some stuff right. But, like, obviously most traits, despite, like, popular consumption, most traits aren't, like, a clear-cut dominant recessive kind of thing. Uh, and, like, he's still the father of genetics. And, like, Freud is, like, the father of, like, psychology. Because he the was, fact... like, the first person that studied it, but it yeah. doesn't mean that he studied it right. Yeah. Like, I feel like he was just making stuff up. <laughs> and got... since he was the first one, they are like, all right, yeah. He yeah, got... this guy. He's the first one. He's, like, the father of psychology, and yet he got nearly everything wrong. Like. So now what? So now what? Now everybody's summer is a ruin. <laughs> I guess he developed psychoanalysis. Um, I don't know, like his whole theories, his theories of development were they even right? Like it's oral fixation and stuff, like because of, right? Or it's like, it's one of those things where like uh, the philosopher Karl Popper uh, didn't like psychoanalysis, like Freudian psychoanalysis, and so his his theory of like what science is is that it has to be falsifiable, and like the criticism of a lot of Freud's things is like. He basically took what he saw in the world and then explained it, like, rather than, like, coming up with an explanation, testing that explanation. Right. So he, like, for, of course, Freud, Freud's stuff is never wrong, like, like, yeah, people love to, like, put things in their mouth or whatever, <laughs> but it's, like, not because of an oral fixation, like, we just, like, right. like, in the way that Freud described, like, he just described what he saw, and it's like, look, like, you can't this prove me it. wrong. Right. This um, is it, guys. Believe. Trust believe me. Believe it. <laughs> um, and it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, and like, y'all just let him come up with the Oedipus complex and get away with it. Yeah. Come on now. Like, there were enough publishers that were like, that makes a lot of sense. Like, that what is up. It, what's wrong with the publishers? Are y'all okay? A lot of people greenlit that and had to go through a lot of... <laughs> yeah. And like, I know some of them must have been like, ew, no. But some of them were like, this makes a lot of sense. It's like, mm are you okay, man? Do you need, like, a cold shower? Like, <laughs> I don't know. So, anyways. Like you said, everyone was on cocaine back then. Yeah. So, those are all of the bad bitches we had yeah. this week. Stay um, tuned next week, where we might talk about, like, the bad bitches of science. Bad right. as in bad, not bad, bad as in bad. bad. Yeah, malicious. 
malicious. Malicious. And maybe we could dive into ethics. We probably should. Right. If we're talking about malintended folk. Watson and Crick, don't get me started. Oh my god, yeah, we're gonna, this is actually gonna be a Watson and Crick hate podcast from now on. Okay, thanks for listening. Much love.